If you have your Bibles, turn to John 21. And when I turned in my information for the bulletin, Morgan says, Did you really mean John 21? We've been in Matthew for a decade, you know. Uh, no, she didn't say that, but she did question whether I had written the right thing down. Uh, we are in John 21 because we don't want to go backwards in Matthew. We have already studied the Lord's Supper, where not only did Jesus wash their feet, but he warned Peter that he would deny him and Judas that he would betray him. And we saw that happen. We also saw the crucifixion on Good Friday as we focused on Jesus on the cross. And then we saw the resurrection Easter morning. And so uh, you look back and you say, okay, I need to go back and pick up what happened to Peter. Peter said he would never deny him, and he did. Uh, But what happened to Peter? And this passage is the only place in the whole New Testament that describes that Peter was restored and given his place back, or never was out, but reassured him that he had a place among the people of God. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. So settle in. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard that, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of coals burning there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net had not broken or torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And this is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Jesus said again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Did he love me? 
He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were a younger man, you, were, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the upper, at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that could have been written. The word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the way that you dealt with Peter. And I know that you uh, would deal the same way with all your fallen people, that you come after them in love and kindness to bring them to repentance and active service in the community of faith. So I pray that you would speak through this passage, speak through me, Speak to your people. Encourage us to be faithful followers, tending your sheep to life's very end. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, when we were expecting children, our reveal party was in the delivery room. When the doctor says, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's a girl. And I don't know when reveal parties became popular, but they really are popular. And there are all kinds of ways to reveal the gender of the baby. And you can have a cake, and when you cut in it, it's pink or it's blue. Or, or you can have a cupcake, and the one that's chosen pink or blue. Or you can have a, uh, a, a tennis ball that you hit, and it blows up, and it's pink or blue. Or... You can have some crop duster fly over you and dust you with a certain color or something like that. Or the weirdest thing I heard is having somebody come and have an ultrasound party. Isn't that sound really good? Go watch your friends have an ultrasound. Kind of disgusting to me. But anyway. But the reason I use that reveal is because when Jesus appears to his disciples, it says in verse 1 that afterwards Jesus appeared. The word could be and probably should be he was revealed to them. He revealed himself. And it appears again in verse 14. This was the third time Jesus revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. By revealing or appearing to them, he was telling them something that they had not yet experienced. He was guiding them into, quote, a new understanding of who he was and what he had done. 
And what we see him revealing himself is, is he's revealing himself as a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He's seeking his sheep. He's laying down his life for his sheep. He's calling his sheep by name and asking them to follow. And so really we see Jesus revealing himself as the good shepherd. So let's look at these headings. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus questions our love. And Jesus calls us to follow. Jesus seeks sinners. Just to do a little bit of geography, which we probably don't do very much when we're reading the Bible. You know, we wonder sometimes why the maps are in the back, but they really are helpful. The last time that we saw Jesus with his disciples, they were in Jerusalem. They had met on two different uh, Lord's Days, first day of the week, once with the eleven, once without Thomas, and once with Thomas. And now we're at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, which is known as the Sea of Galilee. If you want to locate that, you would go to Jerusalem in the south, and you would go 75 to 100 miles to the north by the edge of the Sea of Galilee where they were fishing. We don't know exactly how Jesus got there. We know the disciples walked or rode some animal, but Jesus had the ability to suddenly appear places. But it doesn't say that. It's left to our, our questioning. But Peter has this idea of let's go fishing. And uh, the others say, okay, let's go. And there's a lot of ink being spilt over whether G what Peter was really doing. Was he deserting uh, Jesus and the kingdom mission? Was he saying, I'm going back to my profession, I'm going back to fishing? Uh, or was he just making a statement that, that I'm just waiting for my orders? And if you look back at Matthew, you understand that Jesus told them in Jerusalem to go ahead to Galilee and there I will appear to you. And so instead of seeing this as some wild, crazy desertion of Peter and these people from Jesus, they probably were going to where Jesus told them to go. And while they waited, they had to eat and they had to, they had to make some money. And so they were, quote, fishing. But they were failures that night. You ever go and you catch absolutely nothing? Anytime I've ever been, I've caught nothing. And uh, that's not very often. They caught nothing. And so when they're coming to shore, they see this person on the shore, and he says, uh, Friends, have you caught anything? Now, I don't think you need to overlook the idea of friends. He could have called them, You lazy, no good for nothing, deserters, betrayers, deniers. You know, he, he could have said a whole bunch of things, but he is calling them his friends. Friends, have you caught anything? The sentence is really in the original, in the negative. You haven't caught anything, have you? And, of course, uh, they say we haven't caught anything. And so Jesus says, put the net down on the other side. That's the last thing a fisherman wants to hear. Fish over here. You know, they're biting over there. But they throw the net down and they get a haul that's tremendous. And then 
John, the one that Jesus loved, uh, that's how he described himself, said, It's the Lord. And Peter, in his normal haste, he stripped down for working, and now he goes dressing for swimming. You know, you want to say, Peter, you know, just go like you are. But anyway, he runs to the beach, and he sees that Jesus is there and serving breakfast. There's fish and bread there. And he tells Peter to go get some of your fish. And so Peter comes back with some fish, but he makes a description, the passage makes a description, they called 153 fish. Now, why did it say 153 fish? Well, you know why. One of the ancient church fathers says that's how many species of, of fish there are in the ocean, and that is symbolic that Jesus is going to cast you out into the world and you're going to you're going to gather in people from every tribe and tongue and nation i don't think so uh our one writer said and, and i even found one of my quote heroes that uh, kind of defended this position that 153 is 17 triangularized you math people ever know that is 153 is 17 formed into a triangle. What you do is at the top of the triangle you put one dot, and the next line you put two dots, and the next line you put three dots, and the next line you put four dots, until you get to the last line you have 17 dots, and it forms a triangle. And uh, if you add all the dots together, it's 153. And now you go, okay, I got that. What about, well, 153 is the triangle of 17. And so 17 is the number that Jesus is worried about here. And you know what 17 means. That means 10 plus 7. And 10, I'm not making this up, okay? And 10 is uh, the Ten Commandments. And 7 are the spirits of the churches are either the, uh, the perfect number in the Bible. You know why there's 153 there? That's how many fish they caught. They caught 153 fish. You know, if you go crappie fishing and you catch 153 fish, call me when you're cooking them, you know. But it's letting you know that he has caught that many fish. They're verifying. This is an eyewitness. This is not a triangle or anything like that. And that 153 fish is compared to one casting of the net to, to casting the net all night. They were failures at fishing. And Jesus was showing them, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible, potentially full of blessing. They had failed as disciples. They had fled. And now they had failed as fishermen. And Jesus is using their failure to guide them. God is using their failure to guide them. You know, how many times do we say, well, God opened a door for me? Well, how many times was that door opened after about ten were shut in your face? Those ten were just as much a part of the providential hand of God as the one that was opened that God was providentially using your failure and your disappointment to get you in the right place doing the right thing.
you see that in a person like Chuck Colson. I began to think about Chuck Colson. Some of you younger people don't know who he is. He was on the cabinet for President Nixon. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. It was reported one time that uh, Colson had said he would run over his mother if it would help elect Richard Nixon. He later denied saying it, but he didn't deny it until afterwards because he wanted to keep up that reputation. He wasn't involved in Watergate, I don't think, but he was involved in its cover-up. Because of that, he did time in prison. Before he went to prison, though, he became a believer. And then after he got out, he started a prison ministry. But here's what he says about failure. The great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see faces of men and women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is not any of my successes, my achievement, my awards, my degrees, my honors, not even the cases I won before the Supreme Court. That's not what God uses in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of people is the fact that I was a convict and I went to prison. That was my great defeat, the only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-con. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use in my life. He chose the one thing in which I could not glory in for his own glory. I don't think you could say it in any better. What do you think is God's stance towards you and your sin? You know, what do you think God about God when you have let him down, when you've done that thing again, when you've said that again, when you've fallen? I know you understand you've grieved the Holy Spirit, and we're not to do that. But what's God's stance towards you as you look at that? Do you see God as a God who loves sinners, who comes to seek and to save the lost, that binds up the brokenhearted and the bruised? You know, that's what you need to focus on. The Bible says a bruised reed he will not break. God's children are bruised reeds before their conversion and many times afterwards. And so what we need to see in our sin is God's kindness seeking us, calling us to repentance and to return to Him. But we also see that God questions Peter's love in 15 through 17. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times, and you need to realize that's probably because he had denied him three times. And you also need to recall the detail that he had denied him by a charcoal fire. And the only other place a charcoal fire is mentioned in the Bible is right here. And so the whole thing is kind of recalling to, to Peter his denial so that he could make this affirmation that is a repentance of his denial. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is asking the questions. Don't you wonder why Peter's not asking the questions? Lord, do you forgive me? Lord, do you understand why I did it? Lord, are you going to let me back on the 
tame order? Are you going to put me on the shelf order? Are you going to cast me out? Am I going to end up like Judas? Can you imagine the questions that Peter might have had? But Peter isn't asking the questions. Peter's being asked questions. Do you love me? I have used the NIV 1984 uh, since 1983. Uh, when I got out of seminary, some of my professors helped to translate it. And I think it does a good job on this passage because it makes distinction of uh, the different Greek words. If you notice in the 1984, it says, Peter, do you truly love me? Peter, do you truly love me? And Peter answers both times, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And then the third time, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. And Peter said, you know all things, you know that I love you. There are different Greek words there. And some say that it's not a big deal that Jesus asked, do you agape me? And then Peter says, yeah, you know I phileo you. Do you agape me? You know I phileo you. And then Jesus finally says, do you phileo me? And he says, I agape you. And they say it's no big deal because in the gospel according to John those words are used interchangeably well I would probably differ although I wouldn't make it a hill to die on Sarah and I were talking the other day about this and I said you know if we had had a fight and you said to me Tim do you really love me and I said you know I like you And you said, no, do you really love me? And you go, you know I like you. And she said, do you even like me? And I say, you know everything, you know I like you. Is the interchange of that language important? I think it is. And what Jesus is doing is trying, I believe, to get Peter to really see the love he has for Christ in his heart. Peter, do you really love me? Jesus didn't say, are you going to defend me next time? Are you going to be courageous the next fire you stand by? Are you going to obey me? Are you going to read your Bible? Are you going to keep the Lord's day? Are you going to share the gospel with anybody? Those things are vitally important in the life of a Christian, but the principle is, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, then those things necessarily follow. And so Jesus was aiming at the heart, and so what Peter does is Peter says, you know I love you, you know I love you, you know all things, you know that I love you. Peter's saying, I know that I love you, but you have to know that behind all my failures and all my fears, that there really is a love for you. And you you must know that, Jesus. That's what he's saying. And that's what we say, Lord, you know I love you. Even in the midst of my failure and my struggle, you know I love you. And what Jesus is getting Peter to do is to examine his heart because in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, uh, Jeremiah the prophet says, 
the heart is deceitful and wicked, who can understand it? And Peter's saying, I don't know my heart. On the night of the Last Supper, when I was sitting there boasting that these guys might betray you, these guys might flee, but I'll never flee. And Peter's heart had betrayed him. His love and his courage and his commitment wasn't nearly as strong as he thought it was. And what he does, he's leaning now on the knowledge of the Lord. Lord, not my knowledge, but your knowledge. You, you must know that I love you. When we look at uh, this passage, I think that that's what we have to do, is we have to say, Lord, you know I love you. And I think about a hymn. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, thou art. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou first lovest me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. That was our second hymn. So not only does Jesus, the good shepherd, seek sinners and question our love, but he calls us to follow. He basically says, follow me. They're back to square one. If you go back to John chapter 1, you have uh, the fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes by, and they say, follow me, and they get up and they follow Jesus. And what Jesus is doing, they're, they're... Going back to, to the start, it's kind of almost like, let's do this again. And he doesn't call him Peter, he calls him Simon. Simon, do you love me? Simon was the name that meant little rock or pebble, and Peter meant rock. And Jesus is calling him Simon, a pebble. A little rock. But what he also does, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Now, the same people who don't make any distinction between the words agape and phileo don't make much distinction between sheep and lambs. But I would think that people that have to do a lot with sheep would know the difference. That he's basically saying my whole sheep, not just my old ones, my young ones. My lambs that need protecting and guiding. Luther was asked about his works one day, and he said the only two works that he, quote, wanted to last was his bondage of the will and the catechism he wrote for little children. And so what Jesus is calling Peter to do is to feed the flock, take care of the flock, make sure it gets the truth. And Peter remembers that. In 1 Peter 15, he writes to fellow elders, and he tells them, shepherd the flock that's among you. That's our role as elders, to, to tend the sheep, to feed the flock, to make sure you hear the gospel. And Jesus says, there'll come a time when your arms will be stretched out and you'll be taken to a place you don't want to go. And that's the image of the cross. And tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified like Christ. But Jesus says, in your death, you will glorify me. 
that's reassuring in this way. It is Peter had fallen away briefly, denied him. But what Jesus is saying, to your life's very end, you will follow me, even in the way that I die. And what does Peter do? What about him? What's he going to do? I'm going to follow you and I'm going to die. And Jesus, as good as I've translated this, you know, and looked at it, Jesus said, that's none of your business. What's that to you? You see, our job isn't to say, what's God calling Clint to do or Jacob to do or Jim to do or, or Trent to do? God is calling, what's he calling us to do? And the first thing he's doing is he's calling us to follow him faithfully and to love him with all our heart. So use the last hymn to realize that Jesus is a friend for sinners. And Jesus will welcome you if you repent and believe. Even if you have been like Peter, you've, you've been away, you've fallen, you've disappointed. Jesus ever ready stands to save you. Let's pray. Father, bless the hearing of your word, uh, what's true right on our hearts. Bring forth fruits unto righteousness that our lives might bring glory to you. And we pray in the name of Christ.